Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my cozy mountain cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by thick, lush forests, beautiful waterfalls, and as you can hear tonight, just as on the last edition The katydids, crickets, and tree frogs are in full effect. It's a very, very beautiful evening in a beautiful place, and I am delighted to be here recording this episode, getting a chance to discuss some things that are so beautiful and so subtle and so all-pervasive that it's actually challenging to even think about these topics clearly. And so just simply getting the opportunity to express somewhat uh, my thoughts about these things is actually, in a sense, therapeutic for me and offers a uh, great movement toward clarity within myself and What I hope is that for some of you, it is having the same effect. Hopefully you are catching on to these points that I'm making and to the things to which I am pointing and hopefully enjoying it as much as I am. This is part four in a short series called Music and Life. Uh, a note on the theoretical foundations of sound therapy, which is a discussion of the content of a paper I just wrote, a 20-page paper that's on my website, phisonics.com. And although these this series all kind of each each episode leads into the next, I also do my best to make each episode somewhat of a standalone. So if it's all you hear, you'll hopefully still enjoy it and get something interesting out of it. So as I've done on the first three, I'm going to read the abstract, which is reasonably short and gives the overarching uh, picture of the topic. This informal note addresses some fundamental relationships between that which we call music and that which we call life. Certain similarities are addressed, as are the inherent limitations in the definition of these terms. As music coherently bridges the objective and subjective domains of human experience, it is suggested that we investigate music as a primary resource for a better understanding of life itself. Since this is the the fourth episode in this series, there are, in a sense, too many topics that we've covered so far to really uh, give a nice summary aside from that abstract without being uh, too long-winded and repeating myself too much 
So hopefully if you find what I'm talking about here interesting and have not already heard them, I hope you listen to the first three episodes. I think that this is a topic for anyone interested in music or sound therapy or sound healing or anyone interested in the foundations of science and the relationship of science to our actual experience as humans living here on this earth. For each of us, whether we are trained in science or not, for each of us in this modern world, the scientific framework or the the science view of the world has a tremendous influence on our life, not just in the technologies and things like that that surround us, but generally the scientific perspective influences the way we even perceive what you're hearing right now, listening to these words, whatever you happen to be seeing, whatever you happen to be feeling, even perhaps tasting and smelling and thinking and feeling emotionally. All of these aspects of your experience are colored in some way by the scientific framework. So looking deeply at the scientific framework is a way to look more deeply at our own experience, at what we experience as individuals in this life, living in this universe. So my point being, this topic is relevant to anyone, but particularly to anyone who is interested in looking deeper at their own conceptions, their own perceptions, and looking deeper into how the conceptions that are shared by all the people around us, how those conceptions manifest into how we behave, into our cultures, and into everything that we do and create. So this is essentially, that's philosophy, the essence of what's called philosophy. So the last section we closed out really talking about what is music. And particularly, we looked at three common features of music, being rhythm, melody, and harmony. And the sort of final portion of that section, which I read some uh, words about, but didn't really talk about, is something that I find to be the most fascinating part, in a sense, of this whole topic. And also, in a sense, the most challenging to describe or discuss or state. And I'm going to see what I can do here to talk about it in a way that actually illuminates it 
such that you, the listener, can understand and catch what it is that I'm pointing to or attempting to bring into our awareness. Essentially, this question of how we experience rhythm, melody, and harmony. So rhythm, melody, and harmony are these three really primary features of that which we call music. I'm going, I'm going to assume that you're familiar with those, but I'll give another example. So rhythm, a rhythm might be a melody might be or a harmony might be on top of each other, which would sound like not a particularly inspiring harmony, but nevertheless, an example of harmony. So our question is, how do we experience rhythm, melody, and harmony? It's probably not the kind of question that most of us spend much time considering. We just simply experience rhythm, melody, and harmony. You know, we uh, listen to a song and feel the rhythm or sing along to the melody or feel or sing along with the harmonies. We just experience. We just do it. We don't stop to think too much about the subtleties of what is involved in that experience. But in this context, in the context of our presentation, it's actually worthwhile to pursue that consideration somewhat, to pursue that direction. There are some interesting features of how we experience rhythm, melody, and harmony. There are some interesting facets of that experience that are useful for us to consider. One useful way of approaching this somewhat subtle question is to consider all of our experiences, to divide those experiences somewhat into two basic classes. One we will call objective and the other we will call subjective. I'm not going to take time here to attempt to define those things for you because I've already discussed it at great length. And if uh, this is the first episode you're listening to, perhaps it would be worthwhile glancing over some definitions of, of objective and subjective. So we can divide our experience of music into objective and subjective domains. So what is the objective experience of music? That's not easy to talk about, but we can say something about it. Our objective experience of music is somewhat like a classification process. We hear... Um, certain facets of the patterns coming out of the speakers or the patterns coming into our ears. We identify certain features of those patterns and can reference our past experiences of similar features and essentially class and categorize 
those features, some of the features we categorize as rhythm. And those are the features that are somewhat similar to other things we've experienced and have in our memory that we call rhythm. And the same for melody and harmony. That is essentially the objective experience of the music. We also can, you know, people with perfect pitch can recognize certain notes and name them. Uh, trained musicians can recognize certain intervals and identify them. So our objective experience of music is this sort of categorization, recognition, uh, definition process where we organize the thing we're hearing into various categories and kind of give it a somewhat of a file structure into how it stores in our memory. And our subjective experience is much different. That's what I want to focus on here, is what is our subjective experience of rhythm, our subjective experience of melody and harmony. Can we even say anything useful about these things? Perhaps we can. And let us consider what the experience is like. So, for example, if I play a rhythm... What is your experience of it? That's subjective. Of course, there's all sorts of objective features. You might classify it as a hip-hop beat or call it beatboxing. You might associate what you're hearing with you know, past experiences of those types of rhythms or hearing beatboxing. Perhaps you like hip-hop music and get a happy feeling. Perhaps you don't like that kind of rhythm and sort of get an unhappy feeling. But there's this categorization process that happens when we hear the rhythm. But there's another side of it that is just as real. There's a feeling, a uh, sort of uh, visceral response. So I'm going to do it one more time. And I invite you to pay attention to how you perceive and experience subjectively, not what you think about it, but how you feel the rhythm. What I invite you to notice, and maybe you can go back and listen to that or listen to some other rhythm, perhaps for longer, because the effect is easier to recognize uh, in a longer time frame, that what we call rhythm are frequency patterns that correlate to our body's rhythmic patterns. So the frequencies involved in those sounds we call rhythm, or those part aspects of sound we call rhythm, the frequencies are in this range, you know, somewhere from like, doom, doom. You know, as a really slow rhythm, somewhere to a range of like somewhere between those frequencies is this range of patterns that we call rhythm. If it gets much faster than that faster pattern, 
then we will perceive it as a buzz. And then eventually, if it gets faster than that, then that will perceive it as a low tone. And then on the other side of it, the slow rhythm, the like, doom, doom, doom. Much slower than that, we start to lose the sense that it's actually a rhythm. So somewhere in that frequency range are those patterns in sounds that we call rhythm. And it just so happens that that frequency range is essentially the frequency range of our body's movements. So for on the slow side of it, for example, walking. If you're walking and you slow down and slow down slower, so take, say you're taking a step, 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 and now let's slow it down like step, step, step. If you try to actually walk that slowly, you actually lose the sense that you're walking. It becomes difficult and you start to do something where you're basically kind of standing still as you shift very slowly from one foot to another. So the sense of walking disappears at approximately that same range that our sense of a pattern being a rhythm disappears. Anything slower than that is too slow for walking and too slow for what we really sense as a rhythm. And on the other side of it, with the really fast rhythms, like if you go much faster than that, you can see, you know, for example, I can shake, you can't see me, but you'll be able to hear it. <laughs> Shaking like that. You can't, there's, there's this high frequency range, there's this sort of maximum frequency that the human body can naturally vibrate at. You know, when your teeth chatter or when you're shivering, there's this sort of fastest range of body mo movement frequency. So the frequency range that we perceive as rhythm just happens to be the frequency range that our body moves in. And so when we are listening to a rhythm, if you pay attention, you'll notice that you hear it or sense it somewhat with your body structure. Even if it's not loud enough or strong enough for you to actually feel the sound in your body, nevertheless, when you're just simply listening to it, you sense it somewhat with your body. And people that have more body awareness, dancers and athletes, are more attuned to that part of their feeling and sensation this experience of rhythm that you sense it kinesthetically. Even if you're not literally feeling the sound, you somewhat translate the hearing of it into some sort of feeling in the body. And when we feel our body, what is it that we are feeling? 
We are feeling our self. Whatever it is that we call our self, walking around and doing whatever we do, includes this feeling of our, our flesh, of our physical body. Generally, when we're awake, we feel this physical body, and that feeling of our physical body is included and a very basic, fundamental part of this whole that we conceive of as our self. And so when you are listening to a rhythm and perceiving, experiencing a rhythm and experience it in your body, in the feeling of your body, you are experiencing the rhythm as yourself. Literally, the rhythm illuminates some features of ourself. And those features of ourself that the rhythm illuminates are the substance of our actual experience of rhythm. So our experience of rhythm is literally an experience of some aspects of ourself that are illuminated by the rhythm. So the same thing goes for melody, except it's not really the same aspect of ourself that is illuminated by it. As we move from rhythm to harmony, it becomes more challenging to really put our finger on what it is, what aspects of ourself are being illuminated by our experience. So melody, when we hear So there's a melody, and when you were listening to it, when you were perceiving it, when you were experiencing it, listening just then as I sang it, hopefully I was on key enough for your pleasure, the experience of it definitely included time. So the melody is taking us on a journey through time. And then it's changing notes. And those notes have some relationship to this sort of groundwork fundamental key that the, the that part of the melody is sort of in this sort of fundamental tone that we associate with it. So each note in the melody has some relationship to that, to the fundamental, to the key that the song is in at that point. And it also, each note has a relationship to the note and notes that just came before it. So they're all being compared to each other as we float through time. So all the different notes are sort of comparing, being compared to each other as they drift off into the past, into our memory. Each note as it appears, then it disappears and sort of melts 
into our memory like an echo. And that echo is being compared to the new note that's happening. And in that comparison, we feel some sort of emotional meaning. We feel our emotions traveling through this pathway that's called the melody. So I'm going to sing another melody and uh, just pay attention to your sort of emotional sense and how not so much my singing, but the relationship between the notes that I'm singing, how those relationships naturally awaken some sort of uh, somewhat ineffable Difficult to describe, difficult to put your finger on, but definitely real emotional content. Some sort of aspects of our emotions are being triggered by each note as it relates to the notes that have come before it. Ah, 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 So I'm by no means claiming that that's excellent singing or an especially moving melody. I was, in fact, you know, hopefully you can tell just making it up. But what I was attempting to do was accentuate or make really clear and easy to sense these sort of natural emotional content that is awakened or... Uh, hinted at or activated or nurtured by or pointed to by the relationship between each note and the other notes that those relationships like the difference between ah ah so that first note sets the foundation ah and then the second note Ah, we sense in relationship to it. So check out the difference between that interval and this interval. Ah, ah, that interval leaves you sort of hanging. Ah, ah, has some sort of mystery and you know that you have to go somewhere else. That there's another step coming. There's something coming. What is it? It has to come because you can't settle there. Ah, ah. But here you can settle. Ah, ah. Somewhat. So I'm not going to go too far into that. If you're interested in that topic, there are a lot of excellent resources uh, to learn about the musical intervals. But the point being that 
we experience the melody not only in an, an objective sense, as we discussed already, but also in a subjective way. We feel the melody itself take us on a journey through emotional relationships within ourself. So likewise, just as rhythm and melody do, harmony also not only is experienced objectively, but is also experienced subjectively. And what is harmony? It's as challenging as anything can be to adequately define harmony. Nevertheless, there are definitely some features that are significant and understanding or experiencing those features helps us to understand the, what harmony is. But in the simplest sense, harmony is notes that are being played at the same time. So a melody is notes that are, you know, you're taking a journey through time. You know, each note corresponds to a new moment. And all the other notes are in this sort of ephemeral sea of melted memories. And at each moment, there is a note. And that note is being compared somewhat to these memories of the other notes. But in harmony, the notes are happening at the same time. So it's not taking us through time. It's taking us through another dimension of relationships, how things are currently related to each other right now. So you can imagine melody in a, in a way, sort of metaphorically, but not too distant a metaphor. Melody is somewhat related to cause and effect. So we picture a lot of the universe around us in, the, in terms of cause and effect. So for example, I press this button and then this happens. And then when that happens, this other thing happens, which causes another thing to happen which in turn causes some other thing to happen. So we picture these chains of cause and effect. There's some event which causes another event of which it is an effect, of it being an effect of the first event. So these chains of cause and effect, this linear process, very much like the, a melody. You could, you know, just for fun, imagine that each note or all the notes that have come so far cause the next note so that the next note is obvious that it's being caused by all the notes that came before it. We could just sort of pretend that just for fun. And by pretending that, you can see that there's this really clear uh, relationship between melody and cause and effect. And basically, it's that they're linear. It's this linear path, taking a path. And at each moment, there is a choice of which way to go. You can turn right, left, or go straight, or turn around. And then you're kind of step by step moving forward into the future through a chain. 
and it's the same for cause and effect chains somewhat as it is for melody. So there's an image of the universe and how things work that is primarily how we're taught to think scientifically. So when you take a science class, you know, all of our science classes essentially, or almost all of them, essentially teach us that cause and effect is where it's at. Everything is cause and effect. If you know the laws of everything, then, and if you know what's happening now, then you can predict what's happening next because it's all cause and effect. The universe is cause and effect. That's the song they keep singing to us year after year after year after year in our school. And then it finally sinks into us. It's all cause and effect. And everybody's walking around thinking cause and effect. And in their perceptions of life, their perceptions of the universe around them, they constantly see confirmation of cause and effect. Yep, just cause and effect everywhere you look all day from the time you wake up till you go to sleep. Even your dreams, we conceive of them as cause and effect. And that's sort of a melody kind of way of thinking about things. It's very much related to melody. And I, I expounded on that, even though it was somewhat off the flow of how we're discussing this, but it helps to set apart the difference between melody and harmony, and particularly the philosophical relevance. So when we're looking at harmony, we're not seeing cause and effect because we see, let's say it's three notes at the same time. Dun, dun, dun. Those three notes played at the same time. Dun. So we can't reasonably conceive of one note as causing the other. And there's not a linear path between the notes. So those notes, those three notes, in a sense, compose a triangle, right? A, you know, you can label each note A, B, and C. And A is related to B and C. And B is related to A and C. And C is related to A and B. They're all interrelated with each other. Now we have a complex structure. And when we compose structures such as that in the universe of three interrelated vibratory things. So in a, in a three-note chord, we have three interrelated vibratory phenomena being those three notes, these three vibrations, each of uh, you know, some set of frequencies, the, the harmonic series or overtones or whatnot. These three notes, and they're interrelated, and that interrelationship is uh, its harmony. So that is the type of system that in nature creates what we call chaos. That type of system composes a whole. The chord is a whole thing simultaneously existing, each part interdependent on the other, somewhat like an ecosystem, a whole system. And whole systems are notoriously 
the sort of Achilles heel of science. There is a traditional physics problem that I invite you all to look up. Just go on to a, you know online search engine and type in three-body problem. Three-body problem. And you will find that there is a traditional puzzle in physics that is essentially this gateway to seeing just how much of the universe science can't begin to address. Essentially, if you have three gravitational bodies, imagine there's three big rocks floating in outer space and there's nothing else anywhere around. So there's no significant forces acting on these three bodies other than the gravitational attraction of the other bodies. Basically, that's about as simple as it gets. In fact, everywhere we look in the universe, it's far, far, far more complex than that. But here we just have three gravitationally attracting bodies. It turns out that even though we know the laws of gravitation very, very, very well, and even Newton's gravitational theory, as well as Einstein's general relativity, do extraordinary, extraordinary jobs describing with unfathomable accuracy the behavior that we in space time that we call gravity essentially the attraction between mass and energy in space those laws of gravity are so well known that you would think that if you have three rocks flying around in space near each other gravitationally attracting each other you would think that we could easily predict the behavior of that system in the long term. What it turns out is that we cannot predict the behavior of that simple three-body system in general. And that question is somewhat the precursor to the field of study called chaos theory. Chaos theory is a branch of mathematical science that didn't really, wasn't capable of really appearing in full effect until we had super powerful computers that could do really, really, really extensive calculations that a human could never do. And basically what chaos theory in brief tells us is that whenever you have a sufficiently complex dynamical system, then its long-term behavior cannot be predicted no matter what. Even if you know the laws describing the system perfectly, you still cannot predict the long-term behavior of the system if it's sufficiently complex. And it turns out 
that even three rocks floating in space is in general sufficiently complex to exhibit chaotic dynamics. So this is extraordinary. It's a really big deal. It's something that science teachers don't talk about very much because if you spend much time considering chaos theory, and there are a lot of really excellent books about it for the general reader or for the you know more expert, some amazing, just fantastic, exciting to read books about chaos theory. But basically, our science teachers don't talk about it much, first of all, because they aren't familiar with it because their science teachers didn't tell them. But deep down, the real root reason that it isn't talked about much is because it essentially pulls the rug out from under what we call science. The sort of modern, widespread scientific framework that is the foundation of the pseudo-religion called scientism, that the people who practice scientism are the least likely to recognize that they practice it. This sort of shallow sense of what science is pervades humanity. And it is based on this idea that science can address clearly and predict potentially anything. That science is the fundamentally correct way to understand the universe. And one of science's greatest achievements is chaos theory. And chaos theory very dramatically demonstrates to us that the way the universe actually works, because it is a complex, interdependent, dynamical system, essentially because you have all these different parts that are all doing rhythmic processes and they are all dependent on each other, that they're all interdependent, then you don't have linear chains of cause and effect. You don't have linear chains of cause and effect in a complex nonlinear dynamical system, which turns out to be what the universe generally is. So chaos theory teaches us that this common modern scientific framework, which is the most common way for people in the modern age to perceive the universe, that it is inherently inadequate for addressing the great majority of what exists in the universe, that most of the universe is fundamentally, that most of the universe exhibits chaotic dynamics. And chaotic dynamics are inherently unpredictable. So even three rocks floating around in space, we can't predict what it's going to do. So picture the Earth's atmosphere. Nobody's predicting correctly 
what it's going to do. No one's predicting what I'm about to say right now. No one is predicting what pattern those katydids are playing outside, and no one ever will, because nature is alive, and chaos theory is a fantastic and beautiful step toward our inevitable required acknowledgement of this fact and the overall intellectual humility that will therefrom develop naturally. So that was a jump to chaos theory from harmony. So I'm going to quickly just come back to harmony to connect what I was talking about there. That harmony is a whole system. So whenever you have harmony, you have a whole system of interrelated, interdependent parts. It's not a cause and effect chain. It's a whole system. And how do we experience harmony? We experience harmony, and I invite you to pay attention to this, maybe put on Bach or Beethoven or some sort of very, or even some excellent, you know, bluegrass singing harmonies, where, whichever way you'd like to listen to some really extraordinary harmonies, pay attention specifically to your internal subjective experience of the harmony. And I would like to suggest that even though I can't adequately describe it, I suggest you pay a little bit of attention to this idea that the harmony, when you hear it, and when you feel it, you sense things working together, things going together, this unity, a cooperation, a whole system working together, a whole, essentially this feature of when everything is going together, it's alive. This feeling of aha, of everything moving forward correctly, properly. This sense of it all clicking together in a beautiful way that we can't put our finger on, but we can sense that it all goes together. Somewhat like when we experience that thing that we call synchronicity. On those occasions, we get this sense like everything in our life fits together. Harmony, in a very simple, easy-to-access way, captures and plays with that sense of ourself, that sense of knowing, and that is our mind. That is our spirit. That is our self. As we experience harmony, we are experiencing the wholeness of our self. And so in summary of that section, how do we experience rhythm, melody, and harmony? Of course, we experience them objectively, but we also experience them subjectively. And I'm inviting you to pay some attention to your subjective experience of them, some very subtle attention to it, 
and notice that we experience rhythm with our bodies. Not necessarily feeling the sound in our bodies, although sometimes we do, but sensing it as a relationship between the rhythms we're hearing and the structure and motion patterns of our body. And to experience melody as this path through emotions, through feelings in time, and to experience harmony as this fundamental sense of wholeness, of everything fitting together, of everything working together. I invite you to pay a bit of attention to that, and I strongly suspect that with even a little bit of devotion and understanding what I just said, that you will find that it is not difficult to notice these things. This fact that our experience of music subjectively is an experience of those parts of ourselves that the music illuminates. Thank you.